now it's time for Spin Cycle and welcome to this week's Logie's edition of Spin Cycle. Or is it the mites are mating on your face edition? It could be either, swings and roundabouts, and this is why we need this show to try and make sense of the week's weird and wonderful media goings on and from mating mites to post-logies drama, there has been a lot this week. We are, of course, coming to you from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Always was, always will be. Pay the rent. I think it's paytherent.org.au. Uh, I'm Jess Lilly, and unfortunately, my regular co-hosts Najma Sambul and Charlie Lewis are at home. They have been taken by the various contagions that are around at the moment, weeping into their bed sheets while mites mash on their faces. <laughs> but I am very, very excited that instead I am taught, joined by Breakfasters regular and Triple R Talks producer, the fabulous Elizabeth McCarthy. Hey, Jess. McCarthy. Thank How you are you? For joining, for, thank you for joining me. Thank you for asking me <laughs> on your show. <laughs> thank, you for, thank you so much for um, helping us hold down the fort on Spin Cycle tonight. It would have been a lonely venture without you. Mm. And I'm so thrilled. I don't... I was saying to you before, we've never actually shared a studio together no, over all these years. No, we've never done that. We've talked a lot about radio together. We've uh, seen each other in the corridors here. We've talked a lot about a lot of other things as well. But um, <laughs> And I've worked with you collaborating on content for your shows. But no, we've actually never done anything together. So this when you exciting. called me this morning, uh, I was... Put a little spring in my step. Oh, I'm so Very glad. flattering to be asked here on Spin Cycle. Thank you. My absolute pleasure and um, and I'm so excited to have you here. Um, and uh, in about 15 minutes, um, we'll be uh, chatting to a guest. The National Indigenous Radio Service was named checked, name checked, I should say, by Tony Armstrong in his Logie's acceptance speech um, on Sunday night, uh, and in, we're going to be joined by Karen Patterson, their general manager, to talk a little bit more about the incredible work they do and hear all about it. Um, it's familiar territory for Triple R, uh, this kind of where they got their start, isn't it? Considering mm-hmm. um, how many um, Australian media personalities kind of springboarded from here, aka Triple R, aka the ABC training ground. <laughs> Well, it is, but it's also like, you know, we have to keep in mind it's a media organisation in its own right and, uh, yeah, but we have produced a huge amount of um, of broadcasters and I was, because you said to me this morning, let's talk about the people that uh, have been coming out of Triple R for nearly 50 years. Yeah. And um, one of them who rarely gets mentioned is Ross Stevenson, who has the number one breakfast show in Melbourne and has for decades. Really? Because he's just not a celebrity type person. So he kind of flies under the radar, even though he has this massive listenership. Don't you reckon? I'm going to plead absolute ignorance. What? What? <laughs> what? So he started on uh, Lawyers, Guns and Money oh, yeah. in the 80s. So that was on air for maybe four or five years. And then uh, I think they went to – they didn't go straight to AW. They went to like maybe 3AK oh, or something w. like that. And now he's been on – I don't know why I'm talking about this guy so much, but <laughs> he went on, He uh, has been like holding down the number one breakfast wow. show in Melbourne for decades now, Ross Stevenson. And, and he does fly under the radar compared to people like Kate Langbrook and Sam Pang and, you know – Miff, Miffy. Yeah. Or, Warhurst. Huge amount of people, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I uh, don't listen to 3W Breakfast. I don't either. <laughs> not allowed to. I did not know that. And No, my mum's listened for years. So that's the only 3AW. Namilla Benson, of mm-hmm. course. Yes. On our TV's screens and does an amazing job of that every week. Um, and still pops in the studio regularly. Mm-hmm. She's such an incredible um, champion of community radio, Triple mm-hmm. R, underrepresented voices. Absolutely. Started here. Um, people like, see, I'm going for this huge commercial personalities. What about um, Brett McLeod, who is on National Nine News? He started off with the Danger really? Lowbrow crew. Yeah, you know Brett McLeod? See, I was digging really low. Like, not low, <laughs> of course not, but just in my own little mind world. Mm. You've got a b- more vast well, knowledge I actually th- of past announcers than I do. There are so many people um, that have been interviewed on this station who they come in and, you know, you chat to them before the interview and they're like, yeah, I started out at Triple R. And you're like, really? Oh, wow. It's not in the record books. Um, so, you know, because some people just come on and do like, you know, a summer show and then yeah. go They elsewhere. record it and, and that's their CV. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this is my show reel. This is my show reel. And this is how much I'm worth. <laughs> Recorded from 2am to 4am yeah. in the Triple R studios. But, hey, you know, that's what community radio is also about. That's exactly right. Uh, moving on, uh, before we um, before we chat uh, to uh, Karen, we uh, need to have a little bit of a look at the week's media stories, and I think we'll stick with um, stick with the Logies theme for a moment. Um, it's kind of a surprising that uh, Lisa Wilkinson put her foot in it. So badly. <laughs> yeah, it is, isn't it? You know, so I don't know if I'm, I, I imagine people are relatively familiar with the story, but if not, um, a very frustrated judge has delayed um, the uh, case, uh, the investigation uh, into the alleged sexual assault of Brittany Higgins uh, in Parliament House due to Lisa Wilkinson's speech at the Logies and then a subsequent radio interview the next morning where she just said it it was basically impossible. Um, well, she said the implicit premise of the speech was to celebrate the truthfulness of the story that she exposed uh, and a crowing of the success of good investigation in, of in journalism that resulted in this truthful story being told as it should have been, and it was implicit, implicitly biased in favour of um, Brittany Higgins' story, and therefore, you know, could not um, she couldn't in all conscience allow the beginning of the trial to go ahead a week later um, with that so kind of. Um, recent in jury members' memories. It is an extraordinary lapse of judgment for a highly experienced journalist, which is what Lisa Wilkinson has been working in media since she was maybe late teens. I mean, I remember when she was the editor of Dolly and, like, when I was reading Dolly in the 80s. And her (laughs) career is just quite extraordinary. Mm. I mean, she's a a celeb, what I would call a celebrity journalist, and when she's on her game, an incredibly good journalist. There's no doubt about that. But... um, yeah, but this is a real lapse of judgment and, mm. you know, you can kind of get on stage and thank your producers and thank your executive producer and thank the station and, you know, talk about making good journalism. But to go as far as she did, mm. um, I really, I'm just really staggered. Yeah. 
And so it came out today that the judge has now delayed the beginning of the um, case till October, so three months, which is three months longer that for, you know for Brittany Higgins to have to wait. It's um, that the you know the reckoning the re, I guess the reasoning is that by that's enough time for people to kind of lose it out of their memories. I would say in this media world, another forty eight hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But um, but three months it is. Yeah, it just it just seemed like a um, a bit of a, uh, a a bit of a sort of ego over judgment call. Yes, and we yep, and we all love a good speech. We all like hearing great speeches, and you know she sort of you know looked fabulous and won this. You know it was probably the most prestigious Logie Award out of them all as well, mm. like for actual outstanding achievement in journalism where you're voted by your peers. And um, anyway, we won't labour the point. It was, yeah, it was a big lapse and I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. sure she is aware of... Well, that. she's she's called in the big guns from a legal point of view because she could, she could legally be in big trouble for it. But I loved, you know, obviously um, The Guardian reports it as straight news, but on news.com.au they've managed to fish out... <laughs> All the um, all the other kind of new celebrities who just dig their boot in, you know, the, it's just a they've just strung together mm. quotes from just just you know gossipy quotes from other journalists. Like, well, I wouldn't have done that, <laughs> says Sandra Sally, you know, <laughs> or Ten Weatherman Bailey. Hey, Lisa, pull your head in. I know this might be difficult because it's a very big pet head, but please try. <laughs> It's like they're journalists are so nice to each other. Aren't they? <laughs> they're enjoying it a little bit too much. Yes, um, and also um, the project's really kicking a bunch of own goals this week because Walid Ali has also managed to just I don't know um, uh, sully the the point mm. of a of a of an interview of a TV interview with a politician. What do you make of of his effort well, with Lydia Thorpe this week? Um, it was a massive gotcha moment and it was um, completely unfair and basically was casting aspersions on her character and saying um, there is something illegitimate about a First Nations person taking a place in this parliament. If you, you know, this is basically the point of view that he's coming from. If, if you are all you say you are, Lydia, why are you in our parliament at all? Yeah, it was, and it was disgraceful, wasn't it? Because Lydia was kind of rolled out to defend... Adam Bantz removing the um, mm. Australian flag mm. in a press conference, which I, mm. it just already makes me want to just poke my eyeballs out. I can't stand flag drama. Flag worship. Oh, um, it's just it's, an, it's something, I think, that we've imported from the States in many yeah. ways because, you know, like, I don't know, there's some music festivals you can go to in Australia now where people, and I only started seeing this in the early 2000s, where people walking around with flags as mm. like, you know, shielding themselves from the sun with flags. That never happened years ago. Well, they were banned from a lot of music festivals as soon after that became a thing. Yeah, I think it tied into that sort of, um, it, it's it, the whole sort of flag um, waving ties into with the Anzac um, the, the resurgence and renaissance of sort of the Anzac myth, mm. which... You know, when we were growing up, there wasn't much sort of chest beating about Anzac Day whatsoever. Mm. And I think that, that the Anzac myth coincided with, uh, you know, 
get out your flags. And John Howard, basically, you know, mm. draping himself in khaki and sort of being that kind of prime minister that we had. Um, but getting back... Morrison loved doing it as well with the flag um, mask. Exactly. And to me... The it, pin. Yeah. To me, it's sort of like, well, some people don't stand for the national anthem. That's okay. Mm. If you don't want to stand in front of the flag, that's okay too. You are actually making a statement by not doing that. Mm. And... Why can't you make that statement? And I thought Lydia Thorpe made some really... um, She said some brilliant things in that interview. Um, And I don't know, while Ed was doing that nodding but not listening because Mm -hmm. I think he'd already sort of... He'd already had his little line of attack of ready and waiting. Yeah. yeah, and it was just this sort of... It's it's that sort of um, contrarian aspect of... um, of of political journalism that's seeped in a lot, the two sidesism, the mm. you know um, undermining someone's passion with a um, debate team kind of que- you know trying to chess type question, you know, absolutely, but also isolating her in a way that um, suggests that Aboriginal people who are going to be in Parliament need to be more perfect than any than mm. anyone else there. You know, the extra pressure that minority groups have when they enter Parliament is huge. Mm. I mean, you know, not to compare it at all to, um, to what Gillard faced, but it's the same kind of hysteria. It's mm. like this unusual situation of an Aboriginal person in Parliament, you know, this unusual situation of a fe- female Prime Minister. People lose their minds and they go, they nitpick in the worst possible way. Um, for, for listeners who might not have actually seen <laughs> seen the interview that we're talking about, um, uh, well, Lydia Ali suggested that... Well, when, when Lydia Thorpe um, legitimately said that sovereignty had never been ceded, um, Walid Ali suggested that because she'd sworn allegiance to the Queen to become a senator, which you have to do, mm. she has, in fact, ceded her sov- sovereignty... Uh, and otherwise, was she lying and did she deserve to be in parla- mm. Parliament? And it was just, yeah, real smarmy, shallow, gotcha stuff. Um, Absolutely. You know. And also that um, idea that an activist cannot become a, a, a politician, a politician yeah. is something that some people are very wedded to. Like, you know, who are you going to be when you're going to be a politician? Because you'll have to play the game now. And the game mm. is the one that I set as a journalist and you will answer these, you know, all kinds of questions. And it's not that we're saying, well, I'm certainly not saying that politicians need to be held to a very high standard and ask, be asked, you know, difficult and hard questions. But I think that the way that this was framed was pretty unkind. Well, the game has been set in this country by the colonial, you know, invaders. Mm. That Lydia is now, you know, the, the system, the structural system is the system that she has entered to try and dismantle from within mm. in a really, you know, challenging and um, I would say powerful way. And I, I actually really, I, I thought her answers in that interview were brilliant. Mm. Um, I thought, well, Ed was terrible. <laughs> Independent Melbourne Radio 3 R. 
The National Indigenous Radio Service uh, is a 24-7 satellite feed of programming from Indigenous broadcasters across the country, available for community radio stations nationwide to draw on and broadcast in their programming. Until this week, it quietly went about its business from its hometown of Brisbane, connecting communities with incredible content. Then everyone's favourite sports reporter, Tony Armstrong, name-checked them in his Logie's acceptance speech on Sunday, and things got a little busier for our guest this week. Karen Peterson is a uh, Wagadagan Mariam woman who has a long history as a radio host and broadcaster after starting out as a volunteer on 4WM on Thursday Island, which I am really interested in hearing a bit more about. Karen is now the General Manager of the National Indigenous Radio Service and Board Member of First Nations Media Australia. Welcome, Karen, to Triple R. Thank you, Jess, for the invitation and hello to... Yeah, Spin Cycle listeners, and also to your co-host, Sarah Elizabeth. Hey, hey, Karen. Um, hey, Karen, helpful. how are you? <laughs> Thanks for joining um, well, us. Well, thank you. That's, uh, that's okay. Got nothing else to do on a Thursday night. <laughs> <laughs> Can't afford to go shopping because everything's too expensive. Yeah. So, yeah, why yeah. not have a chat on, on the radio instead? <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I'm glad you could join us. And I, I guess for our listeners... Um, you know, there are actually a couple of Triple R shows uh, that are uploaded to the feed every the NIRS feed every week. The Mission with Daniel James and Indigenuity, Indigenuity? yeah, yes. with Crystal DiNapoli. Um, can you give us a quick overview of the history of NIS, NIRS, like how and why it all began? Yeah, sure. Well, it began back in 1997 and was established. Uh, by um, First Nations community radio stations who were wanting initially, I guess, to um, provide a platform, um, this platform being satellite, to provide essentially supplementary um, programming to particularly aspirant stations. So, you know, if we look back around that period, a lot of stations were getting um, their licences for the first time and so didn't have the capacity to provide 24-hour programming. So uh, NERS was set up initially to help supplement that and then we grew um, pretty much a, a news team as well and um, I think started out with uh, about two journalists and uh, doing bulletins and at that stage um, it was probably only a few bulletins a, a day because of our capacity and today we've sort of grown into, you know, obviously branching out um, to other stations uh, other than First Nations uh, radio stations to provide content. And, um, you know, we're really pleased to be able to share the stuff that uh, 3RRR do to uh, those stations who are able to access the satellite feed. Um, <clears throat> at the moment, we, you know, we're now doing... Uh, 15 bulletins a day. Wow. The 7 and 8, 8 o'clock bulletins of the night time, they're actually repeats of uh, earlier bulletins. Um, but we hope to, at one stage, be able to have the capacity that they're, you know, um, full bulletins, uh, the, the the 15 that, that is, um, you know, that we've currently got on our roster. But we're only really funded to do... Um, <clears throat> to do... Um, uh, I've got to work out the math here. <laughs> That's all right. Where, did, where does the funding come from? So the funding comes from the National um, Indigenous Australians Agency through their um, Indigenous Broadcasting Program. And we also um, 
apply for funding through the Community Broadcasting Foundation oh, yeah. as well. So, um, yeah, it's a bit of that and a, and a bit of this. And uh, obviously, you know, we uh, try to uh, attract sort of sponsorship money too. And um, now that we have DGR status, we hope to be able to um, tap into uh, philanthropy as well, just to grow our news team. Mm. Um, because I think, um, you know, that's an important function to continue, particularly where we see major, um, you know, news bodies withdrawing from regional and remote areas and, um, you know, having an Indigenous voice, um, you know, telling our own news has always been a, a priority as well and continues to be a priority. So, um, yeah, that's basically... Yeah, where we grew out from and, and, and where we are now. Obviously, the other thing um, that would that we do um, on MERS is broadcast AFL. So uh, we have a Indigenous, uh, well, AFL Indigenous Broadcasting, which is coordinated by um, Andrew Underwood uh, to bring uh, a live call of AFL games. There's one actually happening right now. <laughs> um, and... Um, you know, Tony mm. was one of those people that um, Andrew identified early on to, to get onto radio because, um, you know, um, he, he does have, have uh, as they say, you know, a face for radio as well, <laughs> although I think most people probably think he's probably better suited to television as well. So, yeah, so Tony is one of those. But, you know, we've had a history basically of identifying Indigenous talent on early. Chris Johnson is another person, former Brisbane Lions player, who now I think has more an official role with the AFL uh, in Indigenous engagement. But it's, you know, this group of uh, former Indigenous AFL players who, you know, uh, through the AFL Indigenous Broadcasting, we've been able to, um, you know, get them to come and develop their uh, commentary skills. And uh, we're really pleased, obviously, when some of them go on to bigger and better things. And, Karen, if, um, say, any of the listeners um, were to tune in to the National Indigenous Radio Service, in a given week, what, what kind of um, diverse programming would you find? So you've flagged, you've flagged you like, news and current affairs. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of talk shows, current mm-hmm. affairs. Yeah. Uh, then um, sort of later on in the evening, then you've got your more music, um, cultural shows. You know, another uh, part of uh, the NERS programming is, is Mary G, who's a popular figure, particularly across northern Australia. Um, so, you know, a lot of stations take uh, her live broadcast uh, Wednesday nights uh, from 9 till midnight. That's, you know, um, Eastern Standard Time. Whereas, you know, Mary's doing the show from, from 7 to, um, yeah, 10. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, math's not my very good, strong point, so I'll just, you know, declare that now. And, um, and um, you know, we also have, you know, there's one program that comes out of BBM that's, uh, you know, First Nations broadcaster based in Cairns where it's a tribal law, so they're talking about, Law LAW, but also LAOR as well, mm-hmm. which is something that you you know probably wouldn't pick up on your normal mainstream station. So we try to get as much of a diverse mix of programs, but you've got your 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 
flagship programs, I guess, from each station that we try to highlight, and particularly from our member organisations who who own the NERS. Um, so, yeah, we, we try to, um, yeah, offer as much as we can. Um, one of the things that we'd like to see come back, particularly, you know, in the LGBTQ plus um, scene is uh, programs like that. We, we had one that was originating out of 4K1G in Townsville, so um, we're in talks at the moment now with the hope of bringing that back to um, our schedule. And, um, yeah, it, it um, the process is, is really simple. It's just basically stations coming to us mm. and saying, look, we've got this great program. This is pretty much what Triple R did and said, you know, we've got the mission and uh, we've got ingenuity. Um, and um, so, you know, if it fits the bill, uh, we, we, we um, you know, relay it. And we're not like a typical radio station where you might, you know, go to your radio, digital or otherwise, and go and find the frequency that we're on. We're a satellite-based service, as you mentioned earlier in your introduction. And so if you've got a uh, vast set-top box, we're, um, you know, on channel 601, <laughs> if you want to listen to it. You can listen way. online as well, can't you, via your, yes, your website? Yes, we do have, yeah, an element of live streaming, but, you know, vagrancies of technology. Sometimes it yeah. works, sometimes <laughs> it doesn't. Of course. At the moment, I last checked, it was working, so that's great. <laughs> <laughs> if you've just tuned in, we're chatting to Karen Peterson, the General Manager of the National Indigenous Radio Service. And, Karen, you got your start as a volunteer at 4WM on Thursday Island. I'm really yeah, interested... Radio- 4MW. Yeah, oh, 4MW. I'm so sorry. I've got 4WM no, written right. here. Um, I'm really interested to know what that was like, what the role of the community radio station on Thursday Island was and what you, what drew you into that um, well, service. Yeah, I, you know, was really interested in journalism from an early start. Um, people like Yana Wendt and Caroline Jones were sort of um, role models for me, somebody, you know, people who I aspired to, wanted to be, mm. not necessarily on television. Um, you know, a, a radio seemed to be a much uh, easier fit. One could say that I have a face for radio. Um, so uh, when the station started up in the early 80s, up in up on Thursday Island, I just, um, you know, wanted to get some experience and I volunteered and it was basically doing things like um, taking community announcements, um, shout-outs and um, putting away the vinyl records as well. <laughs> so that's showing my age, isn't it? Oh, we still and, have vinyl here. Oh, that's good. That's I don't know how many people use it, it, but it's here. Yeah, <laughs> keep it traditional, man. Keep it, <laughs> keep it old school. Totally. And, yeah, and... Um, it sort of grew from from there. I, you know, was of two minds. I suppose when you're young, you're not really um, sure about where you want to go. Yes, I the the lure of media was strong, but I also wanted to go to university and and teach. So I actually, um, what, what happened was I was initially offered a uh, traineeship at ABC, um, they call themselves Tropical North now, I think, but at ABC in Cairns. And um, it was for three months. And so I thought, yep, 
I'll do that and then I'll um, defer my uni start because I got into James Cook University to do early childhood. So I did the three months, um, you know, traineeship and then went to uni. Um, totally enjoyed the social side of university. Um, not so bad with the academic, but I think the lure of actually earning your own money and paying for things on your own was stronger than my commitment to get my <laughs> um, tertiary degree. And I think I went home one time back to the Straits where I grew up, and uh, I think I was looking after um, some of my siblings' uh, kids, and it was like, these kids are driving me nuts and they're flesh and blood. How am I going to go in the classroom? <laughs> so I think it dawned on me fairly quickly that uh, maybe I should pursue media instead, <laughs> less kids <laughs> involved there. What's the role and, of um, community radio in those sort of remote um, islands? Well, you know, at that stage when Simon, well, yeah, what, what we used to call uh, 4MW, when they started up, they were actually piggybacking off the ABC transmitters. Mm. So we could essentially hop on and broadcast in local language, tell our stories, um, share our news um, for two hours a day, uh, five days a week essentially, and then obviously the station has now grown into a 24-hour station with uh, playing their music that the community wants to hear, um, telling their stories, preserving language, uh, recording music and that sort of stuff. So it, it is about telling our stories our way um, for most First Nations media organisations and, and, and maintaining uh, cultural maintenance another important feature of of community broadcasters, whether they be um, just purely radio or also delving into film and, and, and television. Mm. And do you still like getting behind the mic yourself, Karen? <laughs> Are you on air much these days? No, no. I think the last time I did something on air probably would have been about two years ago, I think, once I became general manager of MERS, um, that was it. My mic days are, be, are behind me. Okay? You've hung so your mic be, up. Yeah, yeah, I hung my mic up, but I still do some production work behind the scenes as well. So um, we have a team of uh, producers who produce the AFL um, to make sure that, you know, they go to air, the mm. call goes to air. And, um, you know, the highlights of each uh, round is also played and that we time out correctly to, you know, when the broadcast stops. And so, and making sure we're connected, obviously, to the stadium mm. and everything's working fine there and sounding good. So, I love the I idea of hearing build... that alternative broadcast, you know, like mm. okay, just a different perspective on the game. Yes, yes. Look, and, and that's one of the things that uh, people quite often say, particularly, you know, through social media, you know, AF, Matt, the, what's the name, through the AFL Indigenous Broadcasting um, and their uh, commentators, you know, they obviously chat a lot on social media and um, I think um, one person who's a former, I'm not sure if he's still doing stuff for the ABC, but Glenn Mitchell, the sports commentator. Mm. Um, I think most Melbournians would probably know of Glenn. And, um, you know, he's been doing a stint on, on National Indigenous Radio Service as well through the AFL Indigenous Broadcasting. And I think he broad broadcast some incredible milestone of, it could be somewhere between 2,000 or 5,000 games or wow. something or other. 
And, um, you know, we got a little bit of attraction from, from that as well because he did a shout-out and has a, a, a following. And um, it was interesting, you know, when I think about it, in terms of Tony's shout-out to yeah. the National Indigenous Radio Service, you know, we obviously acknowledged Andrew Underwood and, and other commentators as well that, uh, you know, he honed his craft with. And um, I think it took a tweet from another, uh, you know, Indigenous social media, you know, um, person, um, I don't know, I want to say giant, but it seems like <laughs> such a big word, um, but um, in, in Chelsea Bond, who, you know, mm. one of the shows that she was involved in was, you know, uh, Wild wild Black Women. Yes. And um, <clears throat> that was something that was also obviously broadcast on the on the National Indigenous Radio Service off uh, AAA Murray Country here in Brisbane. And um, she, you know, captured that clip and shared it. And from there, it just snowballed. Mm. So you've and, been busy um, this week? Well, it's been like well, seeing our um, Twitter followers particularly grow. Mm. It was kind of sitting, you know, somewhere around the 7K mark. And, you know, <laughs> we thought that was pretty good. And then suddenly it's up. Above 8,000, we're thinking, oh, what's going on here? And it was, you know, on the back of Chelsea's tweet, but also on the back of, obviously, Tony Armstrong giving us that shout-out mm. at, at the mm. Logies. And now, I guess, is how do we build on that? Because when I looked back, I mean, we obviously share our news stories that, you know, we... Um, you know, broadcast and publish on our website, that they don't get that much traction. So for for me, it's kind of like puzzling. You like <laughs> this when we're mentioned. Now, why aren't you liking this? This is actual, you know, proper. It's a news, mystery. You know, like stuff about the treaty process mm. in Victoria, stuff about Black Lives Matter and what have you. Mm. And I think you know, it boils down to trying to understand, particularly, you know. <clears throat> Um, I think there'll be a non-Indigenous audience for black stories always. But ultimately, you know, we want to reach our community as well. Mm. Karen, Karen, I can hear the enthusiasm in your voice for broadcasting still. You've had a massive career. So what on a day-to-day level still keeps you really excited about radio and um, being the general manager of the National Indigenous Radio Service? Oh my gosh! You're probably asking me at the wrong time. <laughs> you know, general manager, I've got sort of, um, you know, uh, things like reports to do, <laughs> end of financials, auditors to meet. Um, so all this non-sexy part of working in media. Um, if you'd asked me. Um, Invasion Day, 26 January, different story. Um, <laughs> you, you know, it is wonderful hearing um, our music, our stories. Um, one of the uh, broadcasts that happens on January 26, which comes out of AAA here in Brisbane, is the original 100s, and, and, and original 100, I should say. And that is where, you know, we go to people like, you know, Archie Roach, who's such a magnificent storyteller through his music and, and that sort of stuff. And then, you know, the classics like from Wurrumpi Band and then, you know, Yosu Yindi's language songs, um, you know, just to hear that and hear that diversity mm. from 
across um, the nation is just amazing, and that's what excites me. Mm. Um, is is hearing those voices, different voices from from our elders to our youth, and you know, to our even younger children. Um, so it's that's what that's what's inspiring, but. You know, given the media landscape that we're in and, and consumers' media habits, uh, particularly in our community, we've got to learn to understand that. How do we co-opt mm. younger people? You know, obviously, because our uh, demographics of First Nations people in Australia, most of them are aged under 30. And I remember when I was 30, I wasn't interested in, you know, just listening to all the news and stuff like that. I was wanting to be entertained and all that kind of stuff as well by media um, and now they've got so many choices yeah. compared to what uh, my generation or even you know going back further to my parents generations had in terms of um, media uh, you know consumption so radio faces time. aren't radio faces yeah. aren't always made for TikTok are they <laughs> no, they aren't. Although we try to incorporate it, but, you know, it, it's like, yeah, I'm too old for this. <laughs> but the stories are, the stories are, you know. But, again, it's like once you start, that's the, the, the trouble if you if your radio is such a specialist medium and as soon as you diversify, it's like are you, are you stretching yourself too thin? And I think they're the challenges that so many people in the media landscape find themselves facing. What is, I guess, your what would be your secret vision that you've never told anyone, but you're going to tell it, tell us now on Triple R publicly? <laughs> where would you like? Where would you be love to see Nurse go, or what would be the thing that would just make you absolutely heartfelt, full of joy to reach for Nurse? Because it's such a such an incredible, um, you know, twenty four hours a day stream of stories being told from communities across the country already is pretty incredible. What's your vision for it? Look, um, you know, our board have set this strategic direction for us. Obviously, we want to be the go-to news content provider, Mm. um, you know, uh, for Indigenous issues. Um, That would be ideal um, in the real world Um, you know we might uh, I don't know I don't want to be too pessimistic Um, but you know it is is something that we should aspire to to be the go-to because one of the things we're quite proud of too is that our uh, newsroom is full of Indigenous journalists but unfortunately, we don't have the um, financial means at this stage. Um, yeah. Putting on my First Nations Media Australia hat now, you know, the funding that we receive from the government has remained static uh, for the last 15 years. Ugh. And as we know, you know, the CPI uh, increases, um, wage increases, um have happened continually and so you know that opportunity where media organisations can grow their own revenue through you know a sales manager or sponsorship manager and that sort of stuff they're the positions that go Mm. because you want to keep the essential um, you know staff on the ground like your manager 
like your broadcasters, your mm. presenters and that sort of stuff to keep the content going. But you can't market yourself yeah. to potential advertisers. So, you know, we're sort of stuck between a rock and a hard place. So ultimately, yeah, grow our stable uh, of uh, more experienced Indigenous journalism uh, journalists. We've uh, got um, two cadets, one who's just become a first year, you know, first grade uh, journalist, uh, grade grade level one, and uh, we've got another cadet journalist who uh, is in her final year. So, you know, growing, um, you know, new storytellers is also an important thing and um, hopefully that will continue for NERS and, uh, you know, maybe, I'll tell you what, maybe we do do weekend bulletins at one stage. <laughs> Amazing. Well, <laughs> you know, the news doesn't stop. <laughs> I'm sure there are more um, Tony Armstrongs um, waiting in the wings and it is what an incredible um, organisation, not only gifting us with this amazing content 24 hours a day, but also training people up across Australia to go on um, and have careers like that. And I think, you know, that in itself is such such amazing work you do. Thank you so much, Karen. We could keep going, but um, we're kind of out of time now. Yeah, great to talk, Karen. No, look, it was a a pleasure. And, you know, 20 minutes goes feels like an eternity but um thank you for the opportunity jess and thank you elizabeth and uh have a great show thanks so much Uh, we've been talking to karen patterson general manager of the national indigenous radio service and i thoroughly um encourage people to go online and look them up and look at um all of the amazing uh content that comes out of them (laughs) that's right There was an article that has caused quite a stir on the internet, uh, published in The Cut um, yesterday or the day before. It's funny, it it was called Cancelled at 17, but Elizabeth and I were just saying off air, just clicking on it now, seems to have changed its name to Teenage Justice. (laughs) And I can't imagine why. the article, uh, it's a really long, it's a pretty long read. It's, it's a cover feature um, about a young boy uh, and it's very much um, his story of um, uh, being, and I say this in inverted commas because it's, it's the language that the journalist use, uses repeatedly throughout the article uh, about how he was cancelled by his um, peers at high school um, it's very sympathetic and it turns out he was cancelled because he um, shared a nude photograph of his then-girlfriend with uh, a bunch of other kids at a party. Um, and I think, you know, uh, <laughs> I don't know what to say about this without kind of going deep in into a rant <laughs> Elizabeth, what are your top-line impressions of this article? Oh, look, I um, so I reckon it takes about, if you want to read it really thoroughly, it probably takes about 45 minutes, 50 minutes, if you mm. want to um, really deep dive. It's definitely worth reading. There's a lot going on in the article. Um, one of the things going on is, you know, this is a, commun- a school community in crisis and how much they messed up handling this crisis. The way it's framed, as you say, is sympathetic to the boy. So there's this paragraph. Then in the middle of the summer, Diego went to a party. He got drunk and Diego really fucked up here. 
Everybody, including Diego, agrees on that. So please consider setting aside judgment mm. for a moment. Showed a nude of his beautiful girlfriend to a few kids there. Now, that already downplays mm. the act of doing that and, and somehow sort of says, OK, he, he messed up. Please put, put judgment aside. Is please that, put yeah. judgment aside. But the impact of doing that on that girl... Um, but also preceding this, we've already met Diego in a very sympathetic portrait of mm. him. Um, and to my mind too, uh, you know, there is a lot of isolation going on in this community of him. Mm. He, he actually has been really ostracised and that's how, you know, they supposedly sort of managed it. So there's lots of, um, uh, you know, there's lots of storytelling about the way that he's been completely isolated from the school community um, and they're... And, you know, but the the whole article sort of depicts the cancelling of him in this sort of hysterical way. And there are school uh, walkouts as well, um, protesting that, you know, sexual harassment is rampant in this Mm. school community. I don't know. I felt really conflicted about it because I don't know what your school experience was like, but we were, as girls, because I went to, um, you know... I went to public high school, so, you know, mixed gender. There was a lot of sexual harassment happening, Mm. you know, between, I would say, the ages of 10 to 15. When I think about it, and this article triggered that, um, I reckon I was groped and grabbed at least once a week for five years. Mm, And that is not unusual. And that was happening to girlfriends as well. And it was, you always knew the guys who were doing it. It wasn't all the guys at all. Um, Most of the guys were completely reasonable. Some of them I'm still very good friends with, but... You know, there were particular guys who felt this liberty to do that. And I guess this is another level in, you know, this day and age of actually taking photos and sharing that. That's a new, a different type of groping and grabbing and... Such a violence, isn't it? And, and and, you know, showing a girl off as a trophy. I think what I find really um, disconcerting about this article and really discomforting is what it doesn't do is put it in the context of all the girls who have had that happen to them and then been ostracised. Mm. The girls have been shamed. Mm-hmm. The girls are the ones who've been sexual assaulted and cast out, mm. have had to move schools, mm-hmm. have had to suffer the same, you know, um, p- punishment as their assaulter. Mm. You know, this is the absolute common experience mm. yep. in these situations. This article posits this boy as a sensitive, intelligent victim who made a mistake. But then what I find incredible, like that in itself is already like, whoa, hang on a second, you need to provide the broader cultural context to this. But then what's incredible is then it sort of steamrolls into, I think it tries to pull too many threads at once. You know, it talks about the... um, the social awkwardness that I think all of us felt after being in isolation and lockdown for so long and then suddenly being thrust back into socialising and in schools mm. that, that there was, you know, that sort of played out in some really, um, you know, pretty challenging ways. And and it did. You know, that's the truth. Yeah. I saw it in my kids' primary school. There were some behaviours that were incredible challenge, incredibly challenging. But then they go on to, to say, to use that as an excuse as... These girls or this this these organisers, they keep calling them the organisers, mm, the mob. They're yeah, basically saying up there as overreacting, as their 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 mind isn't right, you know, because of all this this um this thing that we've all been experiencing, this great social catastrophe, and then it, and then they go on and 
equate it to the Central Park Five. And by then I'm just like, my notes, uh, as you can see in our shared Google Doc, are just like red and just like raging, like, what? Ah, You know, there's like, there's so... There's so there's the confluencing there's a confluence of so many things and on a rational level I think what it reminded me of last week we spoke about the plagiarism um, incident with the Miles Franklin longlist John Hughes's book and I think a lot of a lot of authors when when it was very early on being called accidental plagiarism mm. a lot of authors' reaction was like oh god that's my greatest fear fear you know and there was something in I don't know this author and I'm I could just be completely out of line here but you know there was something in the way that this was written that had this deep fear of like what if that was my son what if that was my nephew you know this boy is just like someone I know what if that happened to them you know there was just this there was something in the way that it was written just this unspoken protection of this kid and this type of behavior as well and then turning the reaction to it, and actually, when when the, there were there were long passages about you know the protests that have been organised at school, and you know people they were organising like students were organising saying, no, the school's response to this, and this was not just this one school, there are other schools. This is not enough. We are yeah. organising a committee, and we want a better process to handle mm-hmm. sexual assault complaints and yeah. allegations. Yeah. This sounded really reasonable. <laughs> Absolutely. But yeah. it was being cast as though, you know, it was this pitchfork wielding, like yes. a new satanic, you know, panic or something. Yeah. I think too, I mean, this um, piece points out, like so many of these situations do, that educating kids when they're really young about boundary, and I know I sound really old saying this, <laughs> but educating kids when they're really young about boundaries, and about consent, consent yes. and all those things. And also, as someone who doesn't have kids, when I read articles like that, I'm like, if I had a child, I would be like, you'll own your first phone when you're 25. Uh, you, you can open your own Instagram account when you're 50. Uh, you know, like seriously, it just um, it blows my mind, yeah. all the, you know, the sharing and the sort of... Um, you know, all that stuff, that yeah. sort of the clickiness and the peer group pressure and all that kind of stuff. But it also comes down to the fact of education about all that stuff. And, you know, you sort of have, well, I had sex education in school that sort of went for, I think, about an hour or something. And then it was sort of never mentioned again. And it was always normalised yeah. that boys could do this stuff to girls, that they could just grope and grab in the school corridors or, you know, and you just have your, a bunch of folders in your hand to sort of fend off this sort of stuff. Um, I think what I think what make me makes me a bit heartsick about this story, and I think we'll, we'll end very quickly because then yes. um, is that in my heart of hearts, what's it going to do now for for you know like it just allows people to dismiss that sort of behaviour. We started at the very beginning talking about mites on your face, and I just feel really bad that it, it's just so weird to talk about that and then never mention it again. An article came out in the Guardian today, just basically um, saying that while you sleep, there are mites that mate, mate, mate on your faces and on your nipples. They do, Jess. And the article finishes by saying that they are associated, these mites, doing naughty things on your face and on your nipples with healthy skin. So to lose them, this is the quote, so if we lose them, you could face problems with your skin. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Nad Samble, at Lily Juice and at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? 
Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this.